<clears throat> well, um, today is a, a bit of a complicated uh, passage. This is probably the least straightforward part of all the Gospels, um, in fact. Um, but as ever, I think that these verses, in very broad terms, introduce a very simple truth. In our case this morning, what we're seeing in this part of Luke is a very simple contrast. And that is the contrast between the two ways of, of, of doing God or two ways of wanting to follow and love God. For in this passage, we see very simply that in wanting to live for God, there is Jesus' way on the one hand. And on the other hand, there is the way of the Pharisees. And the question that is asked of us this morning is, again, a simple one. Which way will you follow? And that is pretty much everything that is going on here this morning in a nutshell. We were saying as small group leaders, if we were to um, explain this to a child, that's how we do it. That's a really helpful thing for us to think through as we get into complicated passages. Which way is better do we see here in our passage today? And it's a contrast uh, between uh, Jesus and the Pharisees that Luke has been developing over the past few chapters. On the one hand, um, you have uh, Jesus, even as his birth, if we go back as far as chapter one, he's announced as the saviour that God has been promised to the earth for centuries. Angels are announcing that he will bring great joy for all peoples. John the Baptist says that he is the Lord. God the Father himself proclaims, this is my son whom I love. And Jesus himself says that he is God's special one, the one sent into the world, filled with the Spirit, to proclaim the message of salvation, to proclaim the message of God to the spiritually poor, forgiveness of sins to the enslaved, spiritual sight he gives to the spiritually blind as God's favour is shown to the spiritually condemned. And ever since, Jesus has been proving again and again that he really is all those things, that he really is the Lord, the bringer of God's salvation. And just with the words of his mouth, he drives out spirits. He heals the unhealable. He summons sinners to follow him. So suffering is relieved. The sick are revived. People are put at peace. And God's new and perfect kingdom, uh, that little taster of heaven, if you like, that little foreshadow of Revelation 21, is literally walking around on show personified in and proclaimed by Jesus. And so any right-thinking Jew should have really got this. You see, this should be an occasion for enormous joy. They've been praying for centuries that God would tear open heaven and that he would come through his Messiah to save his people. And here is Jesus. They should be excited. So it is puzzling, irrational and blasphemous, says Jesus, that instead of dancing in the streets and celebrating Jesus, like, like Levi does last week and putting on a feast for him, that these people, these Pharisees, have been grumbling about him and plotting against him. That's uh, exactly the accusation Jesus levels at the Pharisees at the end of last week's passage. And Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom, your promised bridegroom. Don't you recognize me? I'm the one that you've been waiting for. You should be celebrating. Like my disciples, like Levi, it's a time for feasting. I've arrived. But the Pharisees are relentless 
in their accusatory pursuit of Jesus. 5.21, in Luke, the Pharisees accuse him of blasphemy as he demonstrates his authority to forgive sin by healing the paralytic. In chapter 5, verse 30, they grumble about the company that Jesus keeps. In chapter 5, verse 33, they accuse Jesus, accuse Jesus of the conduct of his disciples. And in our passage today, again, three more times, we watch their hostility grow. As they again accuse the disciples of, the, of uh, their conduct, verse 2, as they accuse Jesus of his conduct, verse 7, and by verse 11, they've had enough. They want him gone. In fact, by verse 11, Luke is deploying the art of massive understatement here. They, they discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. In the other Gospels, we see exactly what that means. They are discussing how to kill him. And so there is the contrast. Jesus on the one hand, and the Pharisees' old way on the other. One that seems to bring life, and the other that seems to bring condemnation and death. And what is really clear in the Gospels is that those two can never be reconciled, those two points of view. That is what Jesus was saying in last week's passage. Jesus describes that he is the new wine. The, 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 the new and, and Old Testament fulfilling thing that God has promised that we've just all walked through. But the Pharisees want him to be filtered back into their own legalistic systems, into their own structures, into their own rules that prop up their own self-righteousness. But Jesus says, no, I, I can't be squished into the old wine skins of your existing structures. And so verse 37 is, is sort of lower. So, sorry, 39, that's where we ended last week. That The warning that for the Pharisees, those who have long been drinking the old wine of legalism and law and self-righteousness, those who are so addictive to that old way of life, to the old systems and the old traditions, that they will say no to the new and, and yes, I want to keep going with the old. That's what 39 is saying. For to the Pharisees, the old is good, it's safe, I recognize it, it keeps me going, it, it sets me up, it perpetuates my, my feeling good about who God is. But everything that Jesus stands for, no, that is, that is truly bad. You see, the Pharisees are so addicted to, they are so committed to their old way and their traditions and their systems which prop up their self-righteousness that they detest Jesus. And everything that we read here today is merely Jesus showing the disciples who are watching on and the crowds who are watching on and the Pharisees who are accusing him just what verse 39 looks like. Can you see? What does it look like to say no to the new to Jesus and yes to the old to the Pharisees? And as we see this, we're not just told that this is a reality, but we see just how beautiful and wonderful Jesus is as a consequence. <clears throat> and now is the time for also the crowds to make a decision. Which side would they take in this contrast? That is the point of Jesus doing this. He wants people to follow him. Whose way of being faithful to God, O oh crowds, are you going to embrace? Jesus or the Pharisees? That's a question to us, and, and to a certain extent, that's easy to answer. It's obviously Jesus, it's obviously not the Pharisees. I'm not going to insult your intelligence by, by dragging us through that. 
But note this, things would not have been so clear to these people on the ground in the first century. And this is really helpful for us as we begin to apply this to ourselves. For the Pharisees were not despised, they were not hated, they were in fact, for the most part, incredibly highly respected. This is part of the problem. They were influential civic leaders, they're the kind of people you look up to in all matters of faith and life. They weren't villains. They were spiritual heroes. They were actually defending Israel from Rome. That's what they were trying to do. They were heroes with the full weight of the establishment behind them. And so to the average onlooker, to to depart from them, to turn away from the mainstream, to, to side with this renegade Jesus, was to fear being ostracized and being hated by everyone around them. And that's where we get to the heart as to why this passage is here in Luke and what the aim is. Remember, Luke wants us to be certain of who Jesus is. He wants us to have confidence in him and what is taught about him. He wants us to be willing to leave everything and follow him, to take the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And so today in this passage... Jesus is deliberately exposing the old ways of things, of doing as as being hateful and wrong and inhumane and self-serving and hypocritical. Can you see, if we want to follow Jesus, we have to choose not to follow something else. And so Jesus is allowing this contrast to be seen. And he is also then exalting the glory and wonder of himself. Follow me. So that's what I think is going on in this passage. And three points very quickly this morning as we go through this. The first thing we come to realize is that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the thing that brings this passage into controversy is, again, the behavior of Jesus' disciples. The uh, Sabbath is the Jewish day of rest, and the disciples are on the Sabbath walking through this field of ripened corn that they're picking up And the ears of grain, they're nonchalantly sort of crushing it between their fingers and they're eating it. It's almost innocuous. It's something that I used to do as a kid walking around the edge of farmer's fields. It's it's something that's just done. But the Pharisees appear and they accuse them of doing something that is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, this is where we need to do a a little bit of work. We need to recognize right from the start uh, that the difference between the law of Moses as is written down in its entirety in the Old Testament, in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and the law of the Pharisees, or what was known as as the Mishnah, among other law books that they had. And upon a quick comparison, if that's possible, with two massive great big works, um, you would see that the law of Moses on the issue of the Sabbath is very, very sparse. Um, uh, in the detail, all, all the law of Moses says is that you weren't meant to work on the Sabbath. That's what it actually says. Don't work in order that you could spend time with God. But it doesn't actually detail what constitutes as work and, and what doesn't. And so to, to, to give the Pharisees the benefit of the doubt, in order to make sure that there was no accidental breaking of the Mosaic law or of working on the Sabbath, the, the Pharisees erected a fence around the law, if you like, made up of another set of laws that specifically stated what was work and what wasn't. And and the more they thought about what work might be, then the more laws were added until it came very restrictive. 
So much so that the end product, the final list of Mishnah rules, included the prohibition of harvesting, of threshing, of winnowing, and of making food on the Sabbath. I'm not even quite sure what the difference is between all of them, but there is a difference. And so by their reckoning, the disciples here are doing all four of those things. The disciples, according to them, have broken God's law four times simply in the act of crushing grain with their fingers and eating it. That's the accusation. But the reply from Jesus is astonishing. For in his reply, Jesus gives the Bible, uh, the Pharisees a Bible study, which then he backs up with the most outrageous claim. Have a look at verse 3. And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And then he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now the reference here is from 1 Samuel 21, where King David is on the run from King Saul, and David, caught short of food for his men who were loyal to him, was given by Ahimelech the priest, consecrated bread, which sat in the tabernacle, which was only meant to be for the priests to eat. Now, the nuances around this argument are, uh, are, are complicated. I, I, I do appreciate that. Uh, and, and feel free to come up with, to me at the end if you want to ask more questions about this. But bear with me as I try to smooth out a little bit of what is going on here, what Jesus is saying. And the key here, right from the start, is ultimately that nothing in the Old Testament had truly suggested that David had done anything wrong here. Not because David hadn't technically broken the letter of the law. David had technically broken the letter of the law, which stated that no one but a priest should eat the bread. And Jesus, you notice, doesn't pretend to claim otherwise. But David is right in what he does in the eyes of the spirit of the law because of who David is. Who was King David? He was God's king. He was the true king of Israel. And it was King David's job to fortify and build up God's kingdom in Israel against Saul's kingdom. That wasn't God's kingdom in Israel. Can you see? In short, David is God's king doing God's kingdom work. And as you look at the law of Moses, we see that that is in place for two things. On the one hand, it was in place to show up our sin in humanity and our need for a rescuer. We can't possibly follow all these rules. I break all of them all the time. That's right. And on the other hand, it was established to, to serve the king of God and to point to his work in bringing about God's kingdom. And if the king, if the true king of Israel, King David, God's king, was doing God's kingdom work, that being that the protection of true Israel from the increasingly wayward King Saul by feeding men loyal to the kingdom of God, and if David does this with the intention of protecting God's kingdom as he does, and if his heart motives for the breaking of the letter of the law, in other words, is centered around God and his rightful work in the world, then he, King David, the king of God, doing God's work, has done nothing wrong. In short, David technically breaks the letter of the law, absolutely, but he does it knowing that there is a greater law in play, that as he, God's true king, in love with God, is engaged in the rightful building of God's kingdom. And as such, 
as God's man, in a priest-like way, if you like, he is eating the bread of the presence as a rightful representative of God who is engaged wholeheartedly in God's mission to the earth. And Jesus' point here is a simple one. I, too, am God's true king over the earth. I am the new and better King David. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And so like David, when I turn up, says Jesus, as God's king, like David was doing God's work, like David was protecting and defending the, the building of the kingdom of God, like David was, as I go about healing people with authority and through my words proclaiming the kingdom of God, so therefore what I say and do in regards to the law, specifically on the Sabbath, is right. Because my heart and my motives, like King David's, is wholeheartedly and perfectly wrapped around God and his work in the world. Now that's the argument. Again, I appreciate the nuances. Very fine. Feel free to come back up to me afterwards. And, and discuss it with me. But, but let's stand back from the detail a little bit in order to see what Jesus is really doing here. What Jesus is doing but, but by putting forward this argument is to set up a direct challenge to the authority of the Pharisees. The big question here is, who has the right to tell people what God wants? And the Pharisees are saying, we do. We have the authority on what God's law is and how it applies. And Jesus says, no, you don't. I do. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I have the authority as the true king of God. Now, these are big words from the son of a carpenter. Can you imagine it? It would be, it would be like a, a, a bin man. I suppose, for example, going into the law faculty at Old College in Edinburgh, saying in front of all the professors, listen to me. I know how the law works. I am the lasting legal authority in the land. Listen to me. You point to him and you go, well, the, the hubris. That the Pharisees and the lawyers, the professors and the lawyers would remove him, lock him up probably for his own protection. It's crazy. Well, this is what Jesus is doing. A carpenter laying claim to be the greatest authority on earth over all matters of faith, life, and law. Over and above any greater authority that would have been up until that point. What do you do, says Luke, to the crowds? Do you lock him up? Or do you worship him? The Pharisees are all for locking him up. They're so concerned about their own positions, about their own authority, their own status, their own hold and power, their, 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 them being God's men on earth. They will refuse to acknowledge him as Lord. But Luke says, what about you, reader? What do you make of him? There is a deeper point here than uh, Jesus' authority generally as a true king of God, however, that, than being the better and stronger King David. There is a specific point here about him being the Lord of the Sabbath. He is saying that in and of himself, he is the fulfillment of everything the Sabbath was made for and pointed to. And this is where we get to the beauty of what's going on. And let's all collectively take a deep breath 
you're doing really well, and this is great stuff, and we're almost there, because this is so important. And, and for us to really understand this, we have to go back to the beginning of time. For, first of all, the reason given for the Sabbath command in Exodus was because of, because of God's work in creation as creator. We know that, don't we? We read in Exodus 28 to 11, an overview of the creation story in, in the, the giving of the Ten Commandments and a reminder that six days you will labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day, as God rested, therefore you shall, in remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. So Jesus, in saying that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, is at the same time saying that he is the creator of law, a creator of creation and Lord of creation. For centuries, the Jews were using the Sabbath to, to, to worship the Lord and to worship him and how he spoke creation into being. And now Jesus says, I am he, I am your maker. I'm your creator, so you should be worshipping me. The very thing that the Sabbath was created for. The second time, however, that's the first time. So the first time we see the Sabbath is the command that we do it because God is creator. We recognize that on the Sabbath. The second time the Ten Commandments are recorded is in Deuteronomy 5. And there is another reason given in Deuteronomy 5 for the institution of the Sabbath. And it's not God's work of creation as much as God's work of redemption. After the Ten Commandments are spelled out again in Deuteronomy 5, a paragraph is added to commandment number 4 in verse 15, which reads, You shall remember also that you were slaves in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commands you to keep the Sabbath day. You see, the entire national life and history of Israel has been defined by the fact that they had been slaves in Egypt, but rescued by God, their gracious Lord. And so they took one day every week, the Sabbath, to count their blessings and to praise their Lord for being good to them. So the Sabbath was never meant to be about whether or not you're allowed to pick an ear of corn on a, on a Sabbath. That's not what it was meant to be about. Can you see? Or, or for us, whether we should be watching TV on a Sunday or, or doing our washing or not. It wasn't about keeping Sabbath special for the sake of the day. It wasn't about worshipping the Sabbath, in other words, as these Pharisees were, uh, were, were beginning to do. It was about having time to remember how special Jesus is and to worship him. Can you see? It was a chance to, to meditate on the Lord of your salvation, not to be wrapped up and healthily in the day itself. And now Jesus says, well, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, in other words. I am your redeeming Lord. I am the new exodus to save people from the slavery of their sins. Use the Sabbath to worship me. So Pharisees, stop quibbling about your petty laws. Start worshipping me as your Lord. Now, I hope we can see that if we've ever been taught about the Sabbath being primarily about abstaining from things, then we're really missing the point. We're surrounded by a world that tells us that all that matters is matter, that what we see is all there is, that what we experience is what gets us through life. What the Sabbath allowed Israel to see was that there was so much more to life than all of that. 
for us today, it shows us that there is so much more to life than the material and the tangible and the seen and the, the physically experienced. There is so much more to retirement funds and family and holidays. For what we are made for is for God. To enjoy him and to know him and his love. To find our identity and meaning in him and not in this life. Not on the stuff of a Sunday. Well, what is the chief end of man? To know God and to enjoy him forever. Now that's not to say we don't make decisions on a, on a Sunday. And, and incidentally, we don't, we don't keep the Sabbath, do we? We keep a Sunday. So let's be serious about how we read this. Does that make sense? But let's not, that's not to say we don't have decisions on a Sunday that we might wish to make. That help us rest and worship God. That's the point. It means that we may stop doing certain things if we think that that's what we want to do, and that's okay. But only as long as all those things genuinely help you meet with God's people and rest and remember and worship him. And only as long as those things don't become for us pharisaical rules, which makes us inverted and judgmental of others, and which takes our eyes off Jesus and onto ourselves and our attempting to work, or ironically not work, in order to be made right in front of God. Can you see? Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one you worship. I am the only one who can save. I am the one in whom you find full meaning and purpose. I am the one in whom you find ultimate satisfaction. I am the one who gives you true rest. Because I am the Lord of the Sabbath. How offensive then and how inappropriate that the Pharisees should reduce the Sabbath to a list of rules and set themselves up against Jesus as a greater authority of the Sabbath than he. And how wrong we would be to take their side and refuse to bow the knee and worship Jesus as Lord. That's the point of the passage. How inappropriate. Well done. I promise you that's the most difficult part of the sermon over. <laughs> And one of the more difficult parts of the New Testament, in fact. You've done really well. Um, and we'll move on. And the, and the other two points are a lot shorter, you'll be happy to know. And, and, and if this first controversy of the Sabbath shows the Pharisees for the self-centered, self-important hypocrites that they are, then the second controversy in verses 6 to 11 reveals that they are opposed not just to him as the Lord of the Sabbath, as the majestic Lord of creation, but also that they misunderstand and are opposed to Jesus' incredible compassion and love. Secondly, we see that Jesus is the Lord of love. Just read with me again, verses 6 to 11. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And the man did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now, the lesson is more straightforward here, isn't it? 
Jesus is again in the synagogue teaching on another Sabbath, not necessarily the next one. And it's inserted in here by Luke to make a point across the Sabbath stories. And the Pharisees are here again also desperately hoping that, they, that Jesus steps out of line so that they can finally take him out publicly. They are watching him, waiting for him purely to accuse him. That's what we read. Again, according to the Pharisaical laws, only emergency medical work was to be done on the Sabbath. If there was a baby to be delivered or a life to be saved from immediate and certain death or a baby to be circumcised, then that was all okay. You could do all those things. But not the normal medical work that could wait a day. And that's what we have here. A man with a withered hand wanders into the synagogue in front of Jesus. It's hardly life-threatening. It's something that could possibly wait a day. What is Jesus going to do? That's what the Pharisees ask. Is Jesus going to play by our rules? I love that we're told that Jesus knows what's going on in their hearts. We're told that five times in Luke. He is God. He discerns the thoughts and the hearts of man. And even though he does know what they're waiting for, he doesn't run away from confrontation. He could have left the healing for another day. He really could have done that. Instead, as he often does, he runs directly into the confrontation. He knows exactly what game these Pharisees are playing. And not only does he welcome this confrontation, but he makes an enormous meal of it, doesn't he? He provokes the Pharisees. Um, In fact, have you noticed, he doesn't do this healing on the sly. He, He could have done. He knew the Pharisees were watching him anyway, but instead he makes a public spectacle of the thing. He calls out to the man to stand up in full view of everyone. He draws everyone's attention to what's going on. He then publicly addresses everyone present. He is broadcasting what he is doing without shame. And he does so because he wants to use this man as a visual aid to all those watching on and to those of us reading to show the cruelty and the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees. What do you think is the right thing to do, asked Jesus? To do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? It's a question that catches the Pharisees out. They can't say evil... And if they say good, they know that making someone well and free from pain comes under the category of good, which they know Jesus is going to do. In other words, they either say they prefer evil to be done on the Sabbath, or they say that they know Jesus is right. They also know there's no middle ground. It is a deliberately incriminating question. And in asking it, Jesus turns their witch hunt into an opportunity to prove to the crowds that he is on the side of good and on the side of life and salvation. Uh, The Pharisees are on the side of bad, of, of sadness and evil and pain. Think of this man. A lifetime of pain and alienation without any kind of hope from any doctor condemned to public begging. And yet the Pharisees are so committed to their petty man-made rules that they would rather stand back and watch him publicly suffer than see him healed. As one commentator puts it, it is a disgusting and a humanizing position to be standing on. It is deeply sadistic and truly evil. This really is a shocking narrative in Luke. They are not on the side of God, these Pharisees. They do not love people. They love their own position. They love themselves. And because Jesus threatens their first love themselves, then Jesus really has to go. 
There's no other thing for it. You see, as with all the healings and miracles that we've looked at in Luke that Jesus undertakes, this is so much more than merely a healing. It is a sign and a demonstration of Jesus' incredible compassion and a proof of the evil of the Pharisees. Also, as one commentator puts it, this miracle shows where God's loyalty lies in this fight. If you're in the crowd, as we are in some respects, as the reader, we will be asking ourselves, as we do, whose side is God on here? Remember, it's, it's not clear-cut there and then for the people watching on always who to follow, the Pharisees or Jesus. But here, with this miracle, it is clear-cut. Jesus, in this miracle, backs up his outrageous claims of divine authority and true kingship. This, this healing is a miracle that proves he is Lord of the Sabbath, as he claimed, that the true son of David going about his father's kingdom business, as he claimed, that he is the new wine of God's salvation, that he really is the true bridegroom. God is on Jesus' side, not the Pharisees. God is on the side of love and light and life, not of hatred and darkness and evil and death. And so in this light, how natural are the words that come from Jesus' mouth? How loving and how appropriate. On the day of all days, the Sabbath, that best examples, redemption and creation and life and salvation are the words, stretch out your hand. And the man did so, and he was restored. I wonder how many of us would react if we were shown up publicly. It's a difficult thing and an uncomfortable thing to have to imagine. But for the Pharisees here, they really could have turned around and said, you know what, we've been shown to be really wrong. Fair cop. We repent. We recognize from the whole of the Old Testament and in the way you act, in the way that you speak, that you are the Lord of the Sabbath. And some of them do. Instead, as a whole, they want him dead. And Luke records all of it, not to dazzle us to Jesus' power, but so that we are drawn irresistibly to the beauty of Jesus. Beautiful saviour, wonderful counsellor, that's what we were singing. You can imagine a first century reader maybe hearing about Jesus, seeing him preaching and healing, but then seeing him crucified, if we were jumped to right to the end of Luke, as we were in a few weeks' time seeing him constantly being attacked by the Pharisees, ultimately, seemingly, seeing them win as they manage to stage a show trial and get rid of him. As the Pharisees convince enough people that Jesus might have been attractive, but he was, in fact, a fraud. Does that reader slink back in behind the Pharisees again? Very tempting to. So to us as readers today, in a world that looks like the world is winning, where Christ is a byword for profanity, where the, the liberal intellectual ruling elite is running the show and bringing everyone of note and worth on their side, where the media are convinced and convincing people that Christ is a fraud, do we fall back in line behind them? Or do we, along with the first century reader, open the book of Luke and see this factual account of Jesus displaying his power and beauty, his love and compassion, his desire for real rest and restoration and life and salvation, and see him for the Lord of creation that he is.
do we remind ourselves that he really is the only way? Do we remind ourselves that the Pharisees don't win? That Jesus rose again from the dead? You see, says Luke, we need to know all of this stuff about Jesus. It's so important if I'm going to convince you of who Jesus is and if he's worth following. You need reminding of how beautiful he is, of how right he is, of how powerful he is, how lovely he is, of how desperate he is to show up publicly the hollowness and evil of the Pharisees, of religion, of secularism. Those who despise the sick and would rather see them rot than lift a finger to help them. That's what Jesus is saying here. This is Jesus, says Luke. Get behind him. Say no to the Pharisees. Say no to the old. Say no to evil and hypocrisy, to legalism and death, to hatred and separation. Instead, choose life. Choose the new wine. Choose the bridegroom. Choose the Lord of the Sabbath. Choose the healer. Choose Christ. Say yes to him. Finally, however, thirdly, and very brief, briefly, we're going to finish here. Jesus is Lord of the new Israel. Now, it seems odd that I've tacked this bit on the end. I wasn't even sure I was going to until a few days ago that the natural end of the Sabbath passages are at the end of verse 11. But, but the question we have to answer is, why is this list of the assembling of the apostles suddenly put here in all places? After everything that we've been looking at, it, it just seems to be lumped here between our passage and the focus on the Pharisees' opposition and rejection of Jesus and the next passage, beginning with Jesus' public ministry teaching on matters of discipleship and faith. That's what we're going to get onto next week. How does the calling of the 12 apostles form a part of the narrative of the Pharisees' opposition to Jesus? Well, remember our context. These are the most provocative passages of Jesus so far. And Jesus has been saying, hasn't he, that the old has gone, the old structures and strictures of the Pharisees, their increasing draconian legal system that's gone. I am the new way, the new thing that God is doing in the world as God's king, the new and better David, the new and better kingdom builder, if you like. And as he has been saying that, so here in verses 12 to 16, we see in very simple but very practical detail the physical building and the physical establishment of the new structures of this new kingdom, where we see the new inauguration of the new Israel. Can you see? And, and the new inauguration of new Israel's new leadership. The new authoritative and reliable home for the teaching that he has been given to his disciples and for God's work on earth. It's now here in this new twelve. There were 12 tribes of Israel. And in the past, if you wanted to be a part of what God was doing in the earth, you had to become a part of those tribes. And here Jesus chooses 12 men. He designates them apostles. If you like, they are the new wineskins, the new guardians of the truth that Jesus has been proclaiming. So Jesus' point through Luke is a radical one. If you want to be a part of what God's work on, um, in, the, in the world is now, if you want to be a part of that mission, if you want to be on board with his new kingdom that he is building in the earth, then you need to affiliate and sign yourself up to and align yourself with the teaching and the words of this new 12, this new representative of God's mission on the earth. You see? No longer to the Pharisees. 
no longer to their old way of thinking, now only to the new. The new leaders of new Israel, those called by the king of God himself. The old has gone, the new is now here. And in fact, these five verses are more profound than we think. For it is here, more so even at Pentecost, is where we see the birth of the church. You see, this is Redeemer's family history, first line. And it starts practically, physically, spiritually here in verse 12 of chapter 6 of the book of Luke. This is where we start. As the forerunners of the gospel message that we heard are, are called, gathered, inaugurated, and established here. The gospel message which encouraged each of us to pick up our feet and to march to this part of the world and start a new local church. You see, Jesus in these episodes finally washes his hands of the Pharisees. Once and for all, they're done. And now he establishes his new leadership. And he says, through the words of these men, through these 12 men, you follow me. Get on board with my new structures, with my new wineskins that will carry my new wine, which gives real life. And find in their message my real Sabbath rest. The rule of the Pharisees is dead. Long live the true King Jesus and his church. What of us here today? For those of us here who might be truly scared of the world around us, who might at best be timid about aligning ourselves with Jesus, in a society where doing so is met with at best indifference at scorn, at worst with public slander, threat of being ostracized. What does Luke 6 give to us? Well, Luke 6 is here to say that Jesus is the only show in town. No authority, however powerful in the eyes of society in the world, can ever stand up to him. And they'll never give you what they want to. If we want to know God, we need to be with Jesus. Because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of love and he is the Lord of the new people of God. And if that is true, and it is, then why wouldn't we leave everything and follow him? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, thank you and praise you for this time this morning to sit under your word. Thank you for these really remarkable passages in the book of Luke. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who just is iridescently beautiful as we see him loving real people, wanting to give people real life and real rest as he fulfills the whole of the law, as he shows his authority, and he doesn't lord it over people, but he loves Heavenly Father God, may we be smitten again this morning with the person of Jesus. Father God, for those of us who, who fall into traps of, of legalism, free us from that, we pray. May it be that we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour, the Lord of the Sabbath. Heavenly Father, we do pray as well for those who, who, who don't know this Jesus. May it be that we are very willing, like the apostles, to go out and, and be new wineskins to tell people of the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, this new and exciting thing that has happened to us and for us. Father God, help us always to say yes to Jesus. Help us always to say no to any other way that takes us away from him. Father God, please, please keep us steady 
Uh, keep us steady as a church family. Keep us steady as individuals as we go to work tomorrow morning where we really rub up against the world. May it be that we stand firm and may we live lives of love and of graciousness and, and, and light and life as we want to show off the gospel to all those who need to hear it. We pray all these things with great thanksgiving in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.